You are listening to a podcast from The National. More than 10% of the world's migrant population live in the GCC, making it the highest citizen-to-migrant region in the world. A look at the demographics of the UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, and Oman shows that at least half of the population are non-citizen residents. In 2015, the Arab world as a whole hosted 32 million migrants who sent home some $100 billion in remittances. However, despite their heavy presence not only in the Arab countries but around the world, international agreements on migration are practically non-existent. This allows countries to determine on an ad hoc basis who they allow to migrate to their country. The lack of governance can disrupt the lives of the 258 million migrants around the world, as it did for some when in 2016, the US president issued a ban on migrants from multiple predominantly Muslim countries. This leaves people subject to agreements between migrant and host countries. To remedy that, the UN has drafted a non-legally binding agreement that will help protect and create a framework for those who want to migrate. In December, the International Conference to Adopt the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration will be held in Morocco. 193 countries adopted the non-binding political declaration to create the compact in 2016. However, since then, the U.S. has pulled out from the agreement. So, how will this compact change migration? And what does it mean for the rest of the world that the U.S. has pulled out of another U.N.-sponsored agreement? I am Nasr al-Wesmi, and on this episode of Beyond the Headlines, we have Luis Arbor. She is the U.N. Special Representative for International Migration, and she explains how the compact will change migration. Ms. Arbor has been working on the agreement for years and has hundreds of hours of negotiations with its various signatories. She aims to help the safe travel of migrants and develop the international framework for the millions who move around the world to live. This is the conversation we had on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. Over the last couple of weeks, the people I've spoken to, uh, the IOM, other representatives of countries, talk about the Global Compact for Migration with a sense of anticipation, with a sense of uh, welcoming that finally the UN will start honing in on specific issues. Now, I want to hear from you specifically. How has the journey been and how strong do you think the compact is today? First of all, we're on the way to Marrakesh. Huh? The co- so the text of the global compact has been agreed upon. And when we get to Morocco in December, I think you'll, you'll be able to measure there in a very palpable way the amount of energy that there is behind what is actually a very big project in international cooperation. And frankly, in this day and age, if you look at the political climate in many countries surrounding the issue of migration, if you just look at the state of multilateralism generally, not just on this difficult topic, this is already a success story. It's not self-implementing. It's very ambitious in parts. Some of the initiatives will be very long-term, like reducing the drivers of, of forced displacement. You know, this embraces all the conflict prevention agenda, the, the development agenda. Other things, I think, will be able to pretty quickly have some low-hanging fruits um, on some initiatives. So I think there's every reason to be very optimistic that this is 
a major step, not the end of the road, but a huge step forward in the management of human mobility. Ms. Arbor, it seems to me that you've had, you've been swimming upstream, especially in this environment. You said it yourself, multilateralism is at what it's at. We heard some uh, representatives of their countries talk about how they're trying to protect their sovereignty. Uh, this compact is predicated on countries working together. I know that it won't come overnight when we go to December uh, and the, the compact is actually signed, but what do you hope to see five, ten years down the line? This is, it's in, at any time, it's difficult, I think. I don't have a crystal ball to project into the future. There's a difference between what I would hope to see and what I can rationally uh, say I, I think we can anticipate. I'll tell you what I would like to see. Ten years, let's take a ten-year uh, mark. I think we're going to have to tackle, in a sense, an expansion of the legal protection that is currently, I want to say, enjoyed. It's not enjoyed, but uh, provided to refugees, which is based on the, the profound idea that some people are forced, forcibly displaced. I think that in ten years' time, we're going to have to recognize that it's not just people fleeing persecutions that are, should be entitled to international protection, but many others, including maybe the next kind of group that's pretty obvious is what are sometimes called climate migrants. People who can no longer make a living, or have no capacity to live where they currently reside because of the profound change in their environment. Not to recognize almost a legally grounded um, entitlement to international support and protection, I think would be very short-sighted. We are not there today, but I would hope that we're on the road to going there. And maybe the second observation is, maybe not in 10 years, but over the next, say, 20, 30 years, the demographics um, tell us that we're going to have to do a lot better than we are doing today in a more equitable arrangement for people to share space on this planet, um, whether we do it, and I hope we're not going to do it through conflict. Mm -hmm. We have the equipment to do it through arrangements like the Global Compact. Clearly, that's what we need to favor. In your talk, you said that the Compact isn't necessarily to increase migration or hamper it. It's just to create safe methods of migration for the many people that are currently undergoing transformation, movement, and for the more that are still to come. We spoke to IOM, although they didn't give it to us in numbers, they said that migration is going to increase over the next years. When we were talking, you said that there was a breakthrough with the Europeans in terms of how people move to the country. Could you tell me a bit about that and what exactly was agreed upon that really gives us hope. Well, first, let's just come back a bit on the idea of whether migration is a good thing, a bad thing, how big it is, how big it's going to become. I think viewed completely in the abstract, migration is not a good thing or a bad thing. It's a thing. Though. It's out there. It's always been out there. We know uh, that there's been a quite a radical increase on, and we're talking here, let's not forget that, about international migration. We have to keep in mind most people move domestically. Now we're talking about people who cross borders. 
both voluntarily and involuntarily, or through free choice. In 2000, migrants represented 2.7% of the world's population. Today, 3.4%. Now, are we going to continue to see a proportionate increase? That's difficult to say. What's pretty clear is even if we stay at 3.4%, there's going to be more people on the planet, so there'll be more people on the move, even if the relative numbers stay the same. And I think we have every reason to expect that it will also grow relatively because it gets easier for people to see what's elsewhere and to move. Communications, transportation, opportunities keep increasing. So, yes, we need to... Uh, migration is not a good thing or a bad thing. What is a very bad thing is poorly managed migration, leading to loss of lives or exploitative conditions in which people, because they move through irregular channels, have no legal protection, work in the informal economy in many countries under the radar, subjected to all kinds of potential abuse. This is not good. And on the other hand, well-managed migration is a win-win-win. It's good for the country of destination, who, where the government knows who's there and under what terms. It's good for the migrants. It's good for the people they left behind who receive remittances. This is what the Global Compact is attempting to do, better manage migration. Canada, for instance, has a lot of arrangements. Historically, Canada's basic immigration policy was overwhelmingly on a path to citizenship. Yeah. Canada was welcoming people, very big country, still a relatively new country with human resources shortages. So. But now, increasingly, Canada is also developing different types of migratory patterns, such as what's called mm. circular migration. People come, do seasonal work or work for a time, return to their country with the hope of coming again, but all that in a well-regulated fashion. In the Global Compact, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Europeans, it took us a long time, I think, to persuade them that particularly when you have a lot of inflows of incoming mixed refugees and migrants, it's important to open a variety of legal pathways. The initial reaction was, well, no, we can't do that. We have so many refugees coming in. This is not the time to open economic pathways. But that was, I think, very short-sighted because if the only legal point of entry is to make an asylum claim, Everybody makes an asylum claim, but then many of them don't succeed. While in fact, if they had been given a two-year work permit, they might have worked for two years, go back home, return eventually, all that in an orderly fashion. These are the kinds of ideas that the compact is promoting. So as you said, and I've been thinking about it a lot this week, it seemed that uh, for many countries, migration was binary. Asylum seeker or for professional, there was nothing in between, whereas there is a lot of to gain. But, And this is what I find interesting, is that in an increasingly globalized world, and excuse the term because it's very general, but we need to address problems in the same manner that uh, our world is shaping up to be, to accept people from other parts of the world, to do work for a little bit, and then go home. Now, how does that change if you do actually open up the avenues for circular migration, to legitimize it, to create opportunities in the informal economy? How does, if you are finally able to convince countries to, to, to sign up for that, 
how does it change migration? Are a lot of migrants just actually want to go home because there seems to be this prevailing thought that they're coming to our country and they never want to leave? Yeah, actually, there's this one of the many misperceptions about migration. There's an entire mythology out there about migration. The first thing to recognize is that migrants come in a huge variety of circumstances. Some want to uproot themselves permanently. Some actually come very young with no plan. Maybe they'll stay, maybe they'll go back, maybe they'll go somewhere else. Others, and there's many of them, from the moment they leave their country, they reinvest little savings in their country in the hope and with the project of coming back even decades later. We see a lot of that in Asia, for instance, in the Philippines. And they are governments who invest in this idea of return and reinvesting. It comes in a multiplicity of scenarios. And I think the, the more national policies are responsive to that, the better. For instance, it sounds like a technical issue. It's really important. The idea of working, first of all, in a well-regulated economy, having benefits, and having portability of benefits. This is a principle that would encourage the eventual return of migrants to their home community. So if somebody works for 20 years in France or in Germany or in Canada and acquires pension rights, well, they may not be able to collect on that if they return to their country of origin unless there's a bilateral agreement between the host country and the country of origin so that the, 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 the benefits that have been earned by that per person are portable. As a result, some people have no choice. They stay in the host community, which is not their first choice, but otherwise they would lose something that they've acquired over 20 years of work. That requires international cooperation to favor options, options to come in, options to go back. This is all part, again, at the kinds of initiatives that over time, I hope the UN agencies and so on, will help member states put in place. To put it simply, and just two more questions, uh, are remittances always bad? They're, I don't think they're ever, they're never bad. Um, remittances for a long time in host communities were described as bad because some people would say, well, that's not fair. These workers, foreign workers come here and they only spend 85% of their income in our country and they send the rest home. Well, that's, a, I think, a very short-sighted way of looking at it. The 15% that, on average, migrant workers send back to their home country um, in 2016 or 17 amounted to 450 billion US dollars going to developing countries. There's a lot of it going from rich country to rich country. This 450 billion dollars is three times the amount of official development aid that rich governments send in development assistance to poorer countries. It makes a huge amount of sense to favor that. This is money that has been earned. They could spend it whichever way they want. And so they save the taxpayers of the rich countries all this money that otherwise they would have to, to or maybe they wouldn't send it at all. So it's a huge amount of money. What is, if there's anything bad about remittances, and now there's an agreement on that, it's reflected in the compact, is that the cost of transfer of these monies is too high. On average, it's 7.5%. The World Bank says this has to come down to below 33 on average. 
Because this is money that goes essentially for, from working people to sometimes very poor families left behind. Pays for education and food and so to, to take out 7.5% of that in transfer costs is not acceptable. We have to free up the, and it's a lot of money. So remittances, I think, are very good. I think we've drawn the distinction between refugees, migrants, but then there's also human trafficking. Now, I want to know, uh, what will the Global Compact do to uh, sometimes to address when sometimes migrants overlap into one or the other, either human trafficking or if they try to apply for uh, refugee or asylum? Uh, we already covered that, but more so the human trafficking element. Um, first of all, there's very often a lot of confusion between trafficking and smuggling. Mm. Smuggling is by definition an international migration issue. It's people who assist other people in crossing international borders illegally or through. Trafficking can be international, but it can also be domestic. So human trafficking can take place within a country where people are minorities or people who are easily exploited, young uh, people are attracted through traffickers to become to go into the prostitution industry. So human trafficking and exploitation either in the sex trade or in all kinds of underpaid labor jobs is not in itself necessarily an international issue. When it has an international character, it's aggravated in the sense that it's harder for trafficked victims to seek help when they find themselves in a country where they don't speak the language, they don't, you know, they're even more um, prisoners of their situation. This is an area, though, where we have legally binding instruments. Uh, but it's been very clear that the, the lack of serious pursuit through law enforcement um, of this, you know, there's a lot more interest in the pursuit of uh, international terrorists than in the reduction of human trafficking. It's the reality. This, I think, will have to be addressed, I think, more through political will than new international instruments. They are there. Going into Marrakesh, it's December, it's just a few months out. What do you want to see from states? I think Marrakesh is going to be an opportunity, first of all, at the highest political level. This is an international conference that is at head of state, head of government's level. Uh, not just to rubber stamp the text of the compact, but to show the seriousness of purpose in adopting this compact. And the fact that it will be adopted and the signals of uh, willingness to implement and to partnerships and innovation, I think to me is going to be the clearest affirmation by whatever, 180 member states of the United Nations that they are not afraid, they are not seeing that as any infringement on their state sovereignty. The compact is entirely respectful of the, the fundamental idea that every country, every government has the right, in fact the obligation, the responsibility to determine who, which non-nationals will have access to its territory, under what terms and conditions, subject to refugee law, principle of non-refoulement. There are a couple of international legal constraints, but quite few and well-defined. Apart from that, it's an economic choice. It's a choice based on national policies. Nothing in the compact um, 
infringes on that. At the same time, I think for the first time in UN history, member states have recognized that this is a fundamental issue of state interdependence. As soon as a person crosses a border, it involves the interest of at least two states. And in today's reality, with lots of countries of transit, it involves the interest of many states. So the compact, to me, that's very clear in it, is entirely anchored in state sovereignty, but with the recognition of state interdependence and therefore the need for better state cooperation. That's very much at the heart of this instrument. I'd like to thank Louise Arbor for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Karma Gurung for producing. You can find this and all the other national podcasts on our website or get them off of Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audioboom, or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening and goodbye.